0: Our guest today is Adriana Robertson, Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law and the Rotman School of Management. We'll be discussing her new article on index investing, which is forthcoming in the Yale Journal on Regulation. You can find a link to the article in the liner notes of this episode. Adriana, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: You've written an article uh, titled, passive and name only, delegated management and index investing. Uh, Before we kind of get into the the flesh and bones of the article, could you describe what index funds are as an asset class? How do they work and maybe what role they play in the financial markets today?
1: Sure. Yeah. So index funds have really taken off uh, in the last sort of 10, 15 years or so. They're really a a kind of mutual fund, right? So just taking a step back, mutual funds are a, a kind of pooled investment vehicle, right? Everybody kind of puts their money into a pot and then a manager invests that money. And mutual funds are great because they allow you to diversify without having to put a lot of effort into figuring out what stocks you actually want to buy. And of course, they don't have to just be stocks, right? You can have bond mutual funds and and other types as well. And so a traditional mutual fund has a, a fund manager that picks and chooses the stocks that are going to go into that portfolio. The thing that makes an index fund special is that unlike an actively managed fund, the mutual fund basically just invests according to some index. So, for example, if you have an S&P 500 index fund, for example, then what the fund manager is really going to do is he or she is just going to invest in more or less whatever is on the S&P 500. So your investment is basically tracking the index. Now, you know, as I said, this, this asset class has really grown. And so I think, you know, the latest numbers I've seen has index funds and ETFs, which are sort of a, another kind of basically index fund. They just trade on exchanges. Those are representing, you know, roughly a third of all mutual fund assets uh, these days. So they've become really, really important, uh, certainly in the last 10 years or so.
0: What would be, just to to kind of give a frame of reference, what, do you have an estimate of the total assets under management or somewhere in the, the ballpark of, of where that is today?
1: Uh, well, so I was just looking up with the investment company Factbook for 2019. Uh, so the total net assets of all mutual funds is about 18 trillion, and index mutual funds and index ETFs are, you know, over a third of that. So we're talking, you know on the order of about I guess that would be uh, 18 over three right? So $6 trillion.
0: Okay. So a pretty pretty big chunk. And, and this is primarily something that's being held by retail investors, either directly or through retirement funds, right?
1: Um, not only retail investors. So you also get, uh, in fact, sometimes you'll hear stories about certain endowments, uh, particularly kind of smaller universities, where the endowments just decide to go so-called passive. Um, rather than paying fund managers, they'll just, invest in, in index funds. So this is something that has taken off really um, in lots of different parts of the ecosystem.
0: That's that's a really interesting point about the, the smaller uh, endowments and it, it's almost uh, kind of like the retail institutions uh, in, in some, some sense. Uh, you undertook a pretty big data collection as part of this article. Um, could you describe what that process was like, uh, kind of what, what you collected, and what were some of the questions that were driving uh, that collection?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think anyone who sort of follows uh, business law and corporate finance in the last couple of years or so, I kept hearing about you know, the implications of the rise of index investing, right? Some people talk about, okay, it's, it's going to be really bad for corporate governance. Um, you see arguments on the other side that, no, no, it's not so bad. Um I hear stories about or concerns about what it's going to do to liquidity or volatility in financial markets or price efficiency and every time I would you know see one of these papers or hear one of these sort of uh, conversations, I just kept scratching my head and wondering, okay well where do these indices come from um since they seem to be really important, I should probably yeah. understand what they're doing, and so I went looking for the paper that was going to explain to me you know how indices actually go about doing whatever it is that they do, and I just couldn't find it. Uh, So I figured, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to go figure it out for myself. So what I did was, um, you know, turns out there are just uh, an enormous number of different indices out there. So I had to start by restricting my universe. So I decided, okay, well, I'll just start with all of the indices that are either used as a benchmark for a mutual fund, an equity, domestic equity mutual fund or an index that's being tracked by a domestic equity index fund. So I kind of came up with my list, and then I just asked an RA to help me find all the methodologies, and I just sat down and read them. Uh, So it's kind of pretty old-school data collection, no sort of fancy machine algorithm um, or textual analysis. It was really literally just me reading these things in my office. because I just wanted to know what they said.
0: So, so uh, as part of that you came up with a taxonomy of different index styles could you discuss what some of the the major uh, styles were and kind of what drove the process of creating that taxonomy or what some of the um, the criteria used were
1: yeah so one of the things that was surprising to me although um, you know maybe not surprising to people who work in the industry was the extent to which, at least if you look by number, uh, style indices of one kind or another are just a huge part of this market. So if you look by number of indices, it was over half of the 600 indices that I coded. And, you know, roughly 30% or so of the AUM um, in terms of, you know, looking by by amounts benchmark. So really large. Um, and part of this comes from the rise of these sort of smart beta indices and smart beta funds that we can talk a little bit about. Uh, So, you know, how did I go about creating these categories? Inevitably, it was a little bit impressionistic, uh, mostly because there's no standardization. Indices are essentially completely unregulated as of right now in the United States. So people can kind of do whatever they want. So I kind of had to figure out something that I thought I could do relatively consistently. So I started with sort of very basic factors that everyone in asset pricing is familiar with, things like value and growth, things like momentum and size and beta. Then I added a couple of other things that you know I thought I could fairly easily distinguish between, things like dividends, right? That's pretty straightforward. Um, Volatility, even earnings, You you can kind of wrap your head around that. One that I was a little bit, you know, was a little bit harder. I think, uh, at least you know, from from my kind of asset pricing background, was this quality factor. But it turned out that quality seems to be very uh, popular these days as a factor in the industry. And so, given that I kept seeing it as I was reading through these methodologies, I thought it was important to also include that.
0: You found a lot of uh, heterogeneity and how these indexes are assembled. Um, I guess. To, to back up, who's assembling them? And, and maybe that goes to a kind of a, a related question, which is this idea of kind of in-house or affiliated indexes that you found. There, As you mentioned, there are a few really popular ones, but uh, there are some that are, are sort of uh, an index that's tracked by one fund, for example, and, and I think you had uh, some, some interesting insight in kind of the affiliate uh, relationship there.
1: Yeah, so again, it turns out that this ecosystem is uh, certainly a lot more complicated than certainly I thought going in. Uh, so as you mentioned, you know, there's some indices that tons and tons of different funds use either as benchmarks or to track, right, because those are the two main uses of the indices that I'm focused on in this paper. And I think we can all think about what some of those really, really popular indices are going to be, things like the S&P 500, you know, the Russell 1000. But then, as you kind of alluded to, there's this long tail of indices that are only used by one fund. And so in contrast to the kind of traditional idea, at least I think what most of us have in the back of our mind when we think of an index fund, I think what most of us imagine is there's some index out there in the world, and I'm going to create an index fund, I'm going to track that index that's already out there. Well, an increasingly important piece of this market Actually has that sequence kind of reversed, uh, so increasingly, what we're seeing is you know I go to you and I say, you know I'd really like to to have an index fund with the following characteristics. Could you please make an index with those characteristics for me so that my fund can track it and that's I think what's going on with particularly some of these uh, more sort of esoteric indices out there
0: I- so let's say that I'm I'm starting a fund that is going to be an S and P 500 fund. What what does it mean if I'm benchmarking based on that index versus if I'm tracking based on that index?
1: Yeah, so that's a a great question, and I think there's actually a lot of confusion um, in the conversation around the use of indices because I've noticed people kind of use index in three different ways. Sometimes they mean just the index, right? That thing out there in the world is basically a list. Sometimes what people have in mind is an index fund, which, of course, is a particular kind of mutual fund that happens to track an index. And sometimes what they have in mind is a benchmark. And a benchmark, right, we often use indices as benchmarks. Um, and what we're doing in that case is it's just a way to compare, you know, the performance of, say, my fund or my portfolio to, you know, some benchmark. comparator. So all mutual funds that are regulated under the 40 Act are required to disclose their performance relative to some benchmark index. And so if you have an index fund, there's sort of an index being used for two different purposes. There's the index it's tracking and then there's a benchmark index. And very often those two are the same, um, although there's no reason they actually have to be the same. And then of course, Mutual funds can also choose to report their performance relative to more than one index if they
0: want to. Right. So I think to, to the extent that index funds are, are kind of really in the popular investing kind of mindset, uh, we, we tend to think of it as a fairly mechanical tool uh, where uh, there isn't that much of a, a role uh, for the manager. The manager isn't necessarily picking and and choosing securities to include in the fund. Uh, It's more a matter of of following the index, of tracking the index. And uh, in return, we get lower management uh, fees. uh, We get uh, perhaps uh, lower active management risk. Is that consistent? Is that account consistent with sort of the findings of of this paper uh, in terms of how uh, managers are uh, kind of interacting with, with the funds that they manage?
1: Yeah, so I didn't look per se at what you might think of as kind of tracking error, right? So the difference between what an index fund does and what the index it's tracking does. Right? So the so one measure of that that's common in literature is, is tracking error. But what, what I was kind of interested in was thinking about, well, what about the decision-making that goes into creating the index itself? Uh, so one way to think about kind of the implications of this paper and this project is, you know, the the basic idea is actually incredibly simple, almost embarrassingly simple. And the basic idea is just, look, indices don't just fall from the sky. Uh, Somebody makes them. And making an index is going to involve kind of by necessity all sorts of decision-making. So if I want to make a large-cap index, I'm going to have to decide where I'm going to draw the line between large and not large. if I want to make a value index, I'm going to have to decide how I'm going to measure value, right? And so almost by definition, um, any index is going to be a reflection of the choices made by its creator, right? And those choices are going to matter. So we could have two different people who want to create a value index, and they both might use totally reasonable definitions of value, but those definitions could differ. And as a result, the index they create is going to differ. Um, It's so simple that it almost goes without saying. But the implications of that when we think about index investing are kind of important. right? Because what that means is, suppose that I invest in an index fund. Well, if my fund manager has a low tracking error, which many of them do, um, and if they really are following that index, well then, in reality, the party that's making the allocation decisions is actually the the index creator. Right? So, for practical purposes, in other words, my portfolio manager is the index creator.
0: I think that it makes a lot of sense. The point that passive indexes aren't really passive in, in your paper, and I think that it goes a little bit to the idea that my, maybe we have when we think about when we think about this from a sort of popular. Uh, financial press or uh, investing perspective of these these portfolios are non-discretionary in nature, uh, and I think that it's really useful that uh, you're pointing out that in fact there there is judgment, and and if maybe we need a, another word to use instead of passive because um, they're they're certainly not passive. Have, have you do you think that word might cover up or the the word index might cover up uh, any trend toward Uh, these non-discretionary indexes becoming perhaps more discretionary, whether that's being driven by the fund manager talking to the index provider or, as you discussed a minute ago, the role of index providers as as making those investment allocations and really kind of taking taking on the role that uh, an active mutual fund advisor might have filled prior times? Yeah, I
1: mean, I think part of the problem is we just haven't given a whole lot of thought uh, to what's really going on when we think about index funds and index investing. I think this has kind of just grown up uh, relatively quickly and without anyone paying a, a ton of attention to the implications of what all of this means, both in terms of you know, investor uh, belief, right? so making sure that investors really are getting what they think they're getting, um, and in terms of you know how we ought to or what factors, if any, we ought to be worried about in this market.
0: You mentioned earlier that index providers are not very regulated in the United States. Um, can you discuss, at a high level, how are the mutual funds regulated or the ETFs regulated? Uh, to what degree, if any, are the index providers regulated? And does that break down? Of, of regulation between the two makes sense with with where the market is now and, and how this asset uh, class works in practice.
1: Yeah, so mutual funds, uh, at least the ones that you know most certainly retail investors are investing in, are quite heavily regulated under the 40 Act. Uh, so you know we've got all sorts of regulation around the Investment Companies Act, and then, of course, investment advisors are also uh, being regulated. And that's why all the prospectuses look basically the same. Um, And interestingly, ETFs, which are kind of their own, they're often thought of as their own asset class. They are, for regulatory purposes, also just 40-act mutual funds that have, you know, specific kinds of exemptions that allow them to have their own idiosyncratic operation. But they're also... Basically, just mutual funds, uh, which are regulated under the 40 Act. Uh, in contrast, indices—they're they're just basically a list. Now, in Europe, there's some regulation, um, but in in the United States, they don't have uh, basically any regulation in terms of um, you know who creates them, how fees are disclosed, um, any kind of transparency requirements, and that's. One of the reasons, I think, that I found as I was going through this exercise of reading through these methodology documents, uh, sometimes the methodologies were actually quite clear and there was quite a lot of uh, description in these methodologies, so I could get a a pretty good idea of what was going on, whereas in others it was uh, very, very opaque and almost impossible to get more than just a pretty superficial understanding of what this index was actually doing.
0: You describe a little bit of, of just kind of who these index providers are, whether who the big players are, or kind of more generally, what sort of, sort of form they take, and and how, how does their business model work, and what, what kind of economic role do they fill within the mutual fund marketplace?
1: Yeah, so there's sort of three really big players, and then there's a lot of... Sort of smaller players. So the three big players, I think the names will probably sound familiar. Uh, so there's the S&P Dow Jones indices. So that would include, you know, the S&P 500, uh, the Dow Jones. There's also the, the S&P sort of mid cap 400 and small cap 600. So that's one family of uh, indexes that are created by s and company. and And then you've got FTSE Russell, Uh, That's another big index provider. And they're the ones responsible for the family of Russell indices as well as other FTSE indices. And then you have MSCI. Um, Now, they don't play a huge role in my particular sample, although they do show up. uh, But they tend to do a lot more of the global indices. So they're much bigger when you're looking at kind of world um, and sort of other parts of the global economy. Uh, marketplace and then we have sort of smaller index providers and uh, calculation agents and they provide uh, more niche products I would say
0: and and how how do they how are they paid uh, how do they interact uh, with the mutual fund advisors what's that relationship and and what what does that mean for the the end consumer of, of this product
1: right so it's It's a licensing fee business. Uh, So funds pay licensing fees to uh, the index providers for the ability to use the index either as a benchmark or to track it. And there's not a lot of visibility, it would say, into how those licensing fees are calculated. Uh, My understanding just from some conversations with uh, some folks in the industry is that very often you'll have sort of package deals. um, And so it's kind of hard to separate out exactly how much is being paid for what? Uh, but you know, broadly speaking, it's a, a story about licensing fees. And nobody's running a charity here, so certainly somebody's getting paid for their efforts.
0: Just just as a mutual fund that is, and I'm using air quotes to say this passive uh, or non-discretionary is maybe a better word will have lower uh, fees than on average than one that's actively managed. Is there? are you hearing that there might be a difference between something that is less discretionary like the S&P 500 versus an index that maybe looks a little bit more uh, fluid and a little a little more opaque uh, in terms of just how it's constituted and how uh, assets get picked for it? And, and is that something that uh, an end consumer might want to think about?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's unfortunately, there's as of right now, at least, no visibility into how these licensing fees are are determined. And so I think that's something that uh, an investor would probably like to know. I certainly uh, would be interested in knowing the answer to that. And then, of course, just uh, pushing that one step further, when you have different parties using an index for different purposes, um, and all of them are paying licensing fees for doing so, you know, the index provider has different uh, constituencies, and so they have to kind of balance those different needs and desires. And depending on uh, who is sort of paying more, you could imagine the index responding to uh, different parties in different ways.
0: Part of the role of, of securities regulation, and um, including the regulation of investment companies, is policing for uh, conflicts of interest um, related party transactions Uh, on the piece about the, you know, the potential or the the possibility of of regulating uh, index providers, what do you see as maybe some of the risks uh, related to to conflicts or related party issues that maybe we're not paying as much attention to right now?
1: Yeah. So again, part of the problem is we, I certainly don't even know uh, who the people are that are, are behind or that are making these decisions. Um, And so sometimes people ask me questions like, well, has anything really bad ever happened with respect to a related party transaction? Um, And my only answer is I have no idea uh, because I have no idea who to even uh, look at, right? So in other words, uh, is there a potential? Certainly, uh, just as there's a, a potential for concern when it comes to, you know, investment advisors who are running mutual funds. There's exactly the same set of concerns when it comes to, Uh, the individuals creating indices that are being used by index funds. Uh, But again, unfortunately, it's impossible to actually know the extent to which, if at all, this has ever happened.
0: Yeah, hopefully we don't wake up one morning and and see an expose on the front page of the Wall Street Journal about uh, (laughs) something within the index provider industry. But at the same time, maybe who would have thought at, at some point that there would be um, collusion in, in setting LIBOR or, or other other indexes? So you you just never know, and it, it might take that that big uh, uh, that big first scandal to sort of um, draw attention, uh, unfortunately, to any uh, issues that might be out there.
1: Well, I, I certainly you know I want to just you know, I don't want to impute any kind of malfeasance to anyone because as I said, I have. No, Certainly no evidence that anyone has done anything. Uh, But that may not on its own be a reason not to have a little bit more disclosure or transparency about these kinds of things, right? Because in some ways, the big message is just that for practical purposes, if a mutual fund is tracking an index, then the index provider is the portfolio manager for practical purposes. Mm -hmm. And so really... Uh, the natural extension of that is, okay, then whoever's creating that index should be subject to the same regulations that we subject investment advisors to. And that's the only, that's fairly straightforward.
0: Right. And I think that that makes sense and sounds like a, a reasonable uh, perspective. If, if there are a few kind of high-level takeaways from this article that you'd like, uh, either academics or any professionals listening, what would those be?
1: Yeah, I'll take those kind of uh, separately. I would say that to academics, um, I think the the biggest takeaway is we need to think a lot more carefully about indices and what it means to talk about the rise of indexes and their use. Uh, Because I think up until now, a lot of the discussion has just kind of taken their behavior as given. And just assumed that The index does whatever it does, and let's look at the the implications of the move to index investing on other things. But if we start from a premise that somebody's actually making these indices and those decisions are going to affect the behavior of the index, then we can have, I think, a a little bit of a richer discussion. Uh, So that would be sort of my my big takeaway on the academic side. And then trying to think more carefully about, you know, what that decision-making means uh, to kind of uh, investors, I think the big takeaway is, again, if you kind of accept that making an index involves decisions on the part of the index creator, then the the natural consequence of that is anytime you use an index, whether it be for a benchmark or for an index fund, it's really important to understand what your index is doing. right So, if you're interested in some kind of value index for some reason, well, not all value indices are the same, uh, again, because it's a matter of discretion in creating it. And so just make sure that the index that you're using is the one you think you're using. Um, and so, you know, if they're professional investors, then it would be sort of this, the, same, um, the same kind of advice, right? Pension funds use indices all the time as benchmarks. Um, again, it's really important to make sure that the index that you're using uh, is the same one you thought you were using or is behaving uh, the way you thought it was behaving.
0: Our guest today has been Adriana Robertson, assistant professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. Adriana, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you.